are in the book of Deuteronomy. Today, we are doing the very last installment of the series that we've been in that actually started a long time ago in the book of Genesis. We started with the words, in the beginning, and we're coming to the end of this first portion of the Bible, which is called Torah. Everybody say Torah. Or some people say Torah. Some people say Pentateuch. Whatever you want to say, it's the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And over the last seven years, interrupted with some other series and teachings, such as, you keep using that word, I do not think it means what you think it means. Um, and we did a so series. So what's this whole thing about Christianity or salvation or heaven and hell? We've interrupted it with a variety of things. We've been moving through the entirety of the first portion of our Bible. And so we're coming to the end. Today's the last installment, not only of Deuteronomy, but also of that series from Genesis all the way on. And what I'd like to share with you is some reflections on the last three chapters, chapter 32, 33, and 34. We're going to get a song, a blessing, and an epitaph, a eulogy. And it's doing some weird, odd movements. You would think that at the very end of this thing, there would be this huge clarion, climactic call um, and there's a little bit of that, but it's a little bit of flowy. There's some flowiness in there. And what I'd like to propose to you today, there's usually one thing in each message that I would encourage you to take away, and that is an invitation. As we come to the end, ultimately what this whole thing about, whole thing is about, is about an invitation. And I'm going to encourage you to consider that the work that we've been doing, the journey that we've been on, the tradition that we've inherited from our ancestors all the way to this particular point, should not be couched just within the view of these are religious duties and dogmas that you should obey, although there is some of that language. What I'm going to encourage you and propose to you, encourage you to think and propose, is that ultimately the way this text is framed is to invite you. Not just to condemn or push you or to move you towards some sort of religious fundamentalism, but to invite you. So, let's go through a couple of these portions, point out some highlights and some things that I think the text is doing for you, for us, and then get to what I think is ultimately the invitation. First a song, then a blessing, and then an epitaph and a eulogy. This is a picture that's taken from Mount Nebo on the eastern side of the Jordan River. You can Google this. You can look this up. It's amazing with all of our technology. It is here that Deuteronomy 31, the very end of that passage of that chapter, writes, Then Moses recited the words of this song to the very end in the hearing of the whole assembly of Israel. And I love that the very end of this text that we are coming to, Moses sings. There's something poetic and beautiful about after law, uh, after cultic ritual, after so many sacrifices, after all the drama, the, the daytime soap opera drama that happens between family members, after all of that that we've gone through throughout this text, Moses ends with a song and he begins to sing. What I also find fascinating is that this phrase, the words, is the exact same phraseology that's used at the very beginning of this book, Deuteronomy. In fact, we have an English word, Deuteronomy. The Hebrews have a word, devarim, which means words, these things. 
these sayings. So very much like other portions of your Bible that start with a phrase and end with a phrase. For example, Genesis starts with a phrase over and over and over that is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, and ends with a phrase, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. It is bookending the entire book. It is sandwiching it in. It's called inclusio. I like the word sandwiching. It tastes better. (laughs) Telling you what the entire book is about. And so... Deuteronomy starts off with, these are the words, or these are the things, and then ends with, then Moses recited these things, these words, in this song. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And here's that word again. Same root word. Sayings, words, things, speaking. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. And notice the earth is there. We've talked about before in a couple teachings a while ago that this covenant that God makes with his people that is love and justice and mercy that is grounded in the reality of who God is and who his people are as a result of that relationship is not just about people. It's about the entirety of the creation. So it's with the animals, with the plants, and with the land as well. Really critical for the crisis of climate change that we're facing today to understand that way back then they had an understanding that covenant relationship, what it meant to be in proper relationship with God, meant that we were also in proper relationship with the earth. And then there's this beautiful poetry that begins to emerge in Deuteronomy chapter 32 as Moses continues to sing this song. May my teaching drop like the rain, my speech condense like the dew like gentle rain on grace, like showers on new growth. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. Now, water in the Bible is frequently a paradoxical symbol. At the one end, water is chaos. Remember, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the spirit of water was hovering over the surface of the waters. Waters were existing before creation. Here's the other side of the paradox that water is also life. And so very much like God's words give life, he's using and drawing on drops like rain, condenses like dew, gentle rain, showers. There's this constant repetition of life. And here is where you start to pick up a theme. This ending song is not just a filler to get to the end. It's a culmination of You think these words are important? You have no idea how important these words are for you and for your life as you enter into this land. They are like rain, like dew. And if you don't have rain, and especially think about an agrarian culture, and just think today with the significance of severe droughts that are happening as a result of climate change, when there is no rain, there is no life. And so the author of this text is drawing parallels between rain and water and showers and life. So you're starting to get a clue and a glimpse. These words, they are that important. I think a lot of people sometimes ask the question, so why are you studying ancient texts? What is it with the Bible? Uh, You might even get that sometimes just having casual conversation over Thanksgiving dinner or with people that um, maybe are not religious or maybe, maybe even skeptical. They might ask you, like, seriously? The Bible? A book that was written 4,000 years ago by all sorts of different people that, and a book that doesn't even agree with it? You know, they, they, all that kind of stuff. 
And part of the reason why that text, this text is so central to who we are and how we understand ourselves as people who follow in the way of Jesus, A, Jesus read this text, but, num- but B, A, number two, <laughs> B, the text itself and the people that first heard and understood these texts, they grabbed onto them and they felt by reading this word over and over, by understanding what God was teaching, by embracing all the nuances of life and justice and mercy and compassion and governance and all the stuff that we've been talking about over the last seven years, by doing all of that, you will have life. And I hope that over the last several years, for those of you who've been with us, you have started to see glimpses of moments when you ignore these words, and that leads to death. When you ignore justice, that leads to death. When you ignore mercy, that leads to death. When you ignore commandments that put boundaries around human behavior, that leads to death. And so the author here in Deuteronomy 32 is reaching towards that kind of sense. There's also a brand new name that is mentioned here. First time in the entire Bible is God now mentioned as a rock. The rock, his work is perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God without deceit, just and upright is he. Now, this has resonance later on. 2 Samuel 22 and Psalm 18 talks about the Lord lives. Blessed be my rock and exalted be my rock, the rock of my salvation. And a lot of times people see rock and they think of strength, power, demolishment, right? That kind of sense. But we have to understand is this author is using the phrase rock, meaning refuge, safety, protection, very much like hiding in the crags. This is a rock that isn't about power over people. This is a rock that saves you from the dangers and the harshness of this world. And I found out that when you Google the rock saves, you will actually get an article about how the rock (laughs) saves. I just thought you would find that interesting, that the rock is still saving today. But that's not ultimately the image. The ultimate image is like a bird that's hidden in the cleft. Isaiah 17, for you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. This is obviously a a prophetic voice against us who has forgotten that God is our salvation. The passage moves on. Again, this song flows and has all sorts of themes. It's summing up vast um, ideas throughout this entire text. There is this focus then not only on the words that come down, the, the security and the safety and the salvation of who God is, but then it focuses in on the people. Who are these people? And he makes this comment, Moses sings this portion, when the Most High apportioned the nations, when he divided humankind, he fixed the boundaries of the people according to the number of the gods. The Lord's own portion was his people. Jacob allotted his share. In short, God chose you. There's choosing this sense of you are that kind of a people. And there's a sense of identity that comes when God chooses you. And it's also... Uh, it's mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 7, it's not because you are great and mighty and powerful. It's actually because of the opposite. It's because you are puny and weak and a nothing people. That's why I chose you. The declaration of God's choosing of who these people are is to declare who God is. Jeffrey Tegay in, in the JPS Torah com- commentary writes this about the choosing. In taking Israel for God's self, God granted Israel a privilege God gave to no other nation. 
Hosea likewise refers to God's finding Israel in the desert, delighting in it as one who would discover grapes in the desert. And Ezekiel pictures God as coming upon Israel in the field like a rejected, exposed child and providing for its needs. Being chosen is not about you being special or more important than other people. Being chosen is a declaration of God's character. When we were weak, when we were exposed, when we were left in the field, when we had nowhere to go, when the world had thrown us to the wolves, when the worst was happening, God came and rescued us and chose us. And it wasn't by our own might, but by his spirit. So this choosing, the sense God is, uh, Moses is now singing about God's choosing and about God's character. The passage, the song moves on. I hope you start to see that there's these multiple themes that are being woven throughout this song. This beautiful image of an eagle that is mentioned only three times in the entire Bible. He sustained him in a desert, in a howling wilderness waste. He shielded him, talking about Israel, caring for him, guarded him as the apple of his eye, as an eagle stirs up its nest and hovers over its young and spreads its wings, takes them up, and bears them aloft on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. That phrase, hovers over its young, is the exact same phrase that is used in Genesis chapter 1 to describe what God was doing over the chaos. This is the image and the picture that we showed many, many uh, years ago about an eagle that hovers and incubates new life. I like doing this little movement here. Incubates new life out of the eggs. When you think of God hovering over you, How many of you think of God condemning you, pointing out all the areas where you went wrong, shaming you for not living up to his ways? The image here is about an eagle, a mother bird that is caring for her young, incubating new life up out of the darkness. This is the image. This is the picture. And this is what Genesis starts off with. When the Spirit of God hovers over the water. So towards the... Yeah. You want to take a selfie? You want to take a <laughs> Anything for the people. So what is this text? And what is this song saying? It's going through all these images. A rock, rain, water, eagle, God choosing. Huge, vast themes that we're summing up at this end. Take to heart. This is the plea. Here's the invitation. Take to heart all these words. There's that phrase again, kol hadevarim, all these words, all these sayings, that I am giving in witness against you today. Give them as a command to your children so that they may diligently observe all the words of this law. This is no trifling matter for you, but rather your very life. Hear the plea. This is no trifling matter. This isn't just some sort of religious duty. This is your life we're talking about. Through it, you may live long in the land you are crossing over the Jordan to possess. Uh, th- that phrase, trifling matter, is literally, these are no empty words. These are, this is not empty, trifling words. We don't just skip over this because we skip over it and fine, we just do it because we're in a Bible reading plan. These authors, these ancient people understood words were life. In fact, the entire motif and the story of the entire scriptures is in the beginning when God created, verse 3, and God said. It was by the speaking. And back in, uh, back in the Genesis series, we talked about this phrase, words, 
create worlds. Words create worlds. And these words are meant to create a beautiful, beautifully designed garden, a world where life happens. And these ancients understood or believed that these texts were that. This is no trifling matter. Deuteronomy 33 is this huge blessing over all of the tribes. All of the tribes of Israel get a blessing to say that you are my children and bless you for all the contributions that you make to this community. And then Deuteronomy 34 begins the end. This is the eulogy, the epitaph, the beginning of the end of Moses. Then Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab at the Lord's command. He was buried in a valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows his burial place to this day. Commentators take a look at that phrase and they say, the reason why that's important is because every single one of us have a tendency to venerate and idolize the messenger. And by saying that there is no location and we don't know where this person is, it's to say Moses was just the vessel. You can honor him and you can make him great. You can put him up as a wonderful man, a man of great faith, etc., whatever you want to do. But here's the ultimate reality. The only reason why we venerate and honor Moses is because he was a vessel that was used. Go back and listen and read the story of Moses. He was no hero. I mean, from a fundamental uh, character standpoint. I mean, talk about somebody you don't want your children to be. There's a lot of things in there that are challenging about this person. So no one knows where he is. And if you think these words are great, it's a, it's a tendency, just like the people at Mount Sinai to venerate the golden calf. We need to see this God. So the people are going to be tempted with Moses as well. And the other reason why that's important is because it's going to shift into how great Moses actually is. So there's this weird paradox. Never since has there arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unequaled for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his servants and all his entire land and for almighty deeds and all the terrifying displays of power that Moses performed in all the sight of all Israel. But nobody really knows where he's buried right? You have these two things. And commentators suggest that the reason why these two things are going hand in hand at the very end of Deuteronomy is to, one, make sure that you do not idolize the man, but number two, because the man was the messenger, you have to understand how important the words are that come through. So there's this both and. Okay, so what's this all about? Towards the end of this book, you see these clues. The song, the imagery, the metaphor, the reminding of your chosenness, the references back to Genesis, the identity of the tribes. There's all sorts of flowing motifs to this end. And honestly, this is, a really, this is really hard for me to just skip over because each particular verse was just wrought with this huge sense of significance away from the from the back, from the beginning. What I'm going to suggest and propose is all of those things are hearkening back to some moment in our spiritual history in which God was inviting us to participate in a new kind of life, was inviting us to participate in his particular way. And every single example, every story, every person along the way was just simply another moment where God was inviting us to come along. And then towards the end of the book, all throughout, actually, and especially towards the end, 
there's going to be this moment where he's saying, pass this on, teach this to your children. Deuteronomy chapter 6 actually talks about teach this to you, impress them on your children. Make sure you teach and talk about this all the time because they are your life. I'm inviting you to participate in the long, the long journey of perpetuating and continuing this kind of life. So this invitation and the reason why we talk about it and the reason why we continue to revisit these texts is because to do so reminds us that we are being beckoned, we are being called, we are being asked to engage, we are being moved, allured. And I like this word, enchanted. There's something about what happened back then that moves us, that wows us, that causes us to stop and reflect about our history and our tradition. I would suggest that an invitation to teach is to woo the listener, to consider this wisdom, this way of knowing God, of being known and being loved and to advance this kind of humanity in this world. These texts are not here just to codify, solidify, to cement in time and space. This is what ancient people believed. These texts are here and being offered to you and saying, will you consider? Will you consider creating Eden on this planet? Will you consider upending the systems of injustice on this planet? Will you consider pursuing justice and justice will you pursue? Will you consider rituals and time and tradition, the flow? Will you consider gathering together as a community all things that are so critically important, especially in our day, which we'll talk about? Will you consider? And I hope that through our time together, you will feel this sense of woo. You will feel this sense of invitation. You will feel this sense that just like God was choosing Israel, and by that moment, expressing his character of undying grace and love, that you will feel moved to accept that invitation as well. Douglas Rushkoff, in his book, Nothing Sacred, makes this really unique observation about the end of Deuteronomy. The most important story in Judaism, the Torah, leaves the Israelites in exile. Now, what is exile? Exile is the place where you're not in slavery, but you're not home yet. In fact, exile is both of those things, but you're kind of in this land in between. And you would think that at the very end of the most important story of Deuteronomy, you would get into the promised land and you would be exactly who God has called you to be. But I love this observation. It is true. Moses dies and they don't get in yet. You have to move to Joshua to do that. There's another portion of the story that's coming in order for you to get to the continuation. It's almost as if the text is there not to put a solid end on the story. The text is there to invite you in to continue to play out that story, the themes, the ideas, all the deepest spiritual truths. And so at the very end, there's this placement of hands on Joshua. You are now to go and do this very thing. We've been doing this in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We were slaves in Egypt. Don't forget Leviticus and all the rituals. Make sure you remember all the sacrifices and the systems and make sure you remember the holidays and celebrate Passover. Oh, and if anybody ever gets in debt with one another, make sure that every seven years, everybody is freed from debt so that there's no economic justice. Don't forget these things, Joshua, as you move into the land. It's almost as if there's an invitation there that all these things that our ancestors went through is saying, please, you continue on this journey. You continue to do this. Torah exists, I suggest. 
to invite the next generation to carry on this legacy, to be faithful to our ancestors, and to be committed to this aim. And honestly, this is why we talk about it here. The most important central grounding ethics that transformed all of civilization that brought us to this particular point are found in these texts. And so we mine them for all their goodness. We mine them for all their wisdom. And we hope that through the time that we've spent, you have been wooed and invited in to live it out. I hesitated to push so hard on this invitation because we live in a capitalist economy where advertising and marketing agencies have done a really, really good job captivating this part of who we are. We are storied beings. We know how to tell stories, we know how to live stories, and we know what meaning comes from those stories. And so many years ago, um, Douglas Rushkoff did this production called The Persuaders and talked about how there's a shift in marketing and advertising. Many of you might remember this. Prior to maybe 70s, 80s, somewhere in that time, when marketers and advertisers wanted to sell you something, they had these things called ER words, brighter, better, faster, etc. And to offer you a thing that they wanted you to buy, they would market this thing as better than the other competition. But what happened? Well, everybody started to get better. Every detergent washes the same. Every soap washes the same. And so there was this shift in marketing and advertising from ER words to love words, relationship words. We are not just selling you coffee now. We are creating a communal experience. We're not just selling you paper goods. We're creating, we're giving you the opportunity to create art. And it just goes on and on and on. And many of you are very aware of this. And then marketers and advertising, advertisers realized that every single one of us are not just huge broadcast group of people. We're not the same. And so they would be able to take some parts of our identity and say, well, wait a second, you are this kind of a person, so now I'm, now I'm going to push a particular message to you about something that's specific to you that you like. And this fragmentation begins to happen. And then in most recent iteration of this shift, there's micro-marketing. Now, because all of you, not all of you, because you're on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and you like and you do all these things, that data is now being used to target you in a very specific way so that you will buy these things. And it's starting to create a whole other phenomena that just never really existed before. And it's all about how important and how valuable you are and how you get to create your own story and about how you get to govern your values, your sense of ethics and what you do and how you behave and who you are and how you see yourself. And marketers and advertisers and tech companies are really, really good. They know about the psychology of this. So when I talk about persuasion and woo, I was really hesitant because I wanted to like do a whole thing just on this and how the text is doing something very different from that. But I wanted to mention this because I have a feeling that when you hear me say the text is wooing you, encouraging you, attracting you, this is the context that we see. And here's the main distinction that I would like to draw. What's going on in today's world through all of these pathways is a woo for the purposes of purchasing capitalism, buying to create a market and a commoditization of who you are as an identity. 
But what I'm going to suggest to you is that the woo and the invitation that comes from the text and the tradition that we have inherited is nothing like that at all. Let's go back to the very beginning. Yes, we once had the URL sparkchurch.net. That was many, many, many moons ago. And I'd like to take you to an illustration that we talked about at the very beginning, starting in Genesis 1. We often think of Genesis 1, God created in the beginning light, oceans, land, sky, as some sort of mechanical process, day one, day two, day three. But for those of you who are with us, you might remember that Genesis isn't really written to tell us what happened. It is written to give us an image and a picture of something grand that this God was doing at the beginning. And the illustration that I used was of an orchestra. Something was happening at the very beginning that allowed a conductor to take all the pieces of the puzzle, land, sea, trees, fish, people, and put them all in the right place and to create something wonderful and musical out of this. What I love about this clip, when you watch this, you will often see some of the players look up every now and then at the conductor and say, am I in the right place? And this is the image in the picture that we talked about what Genesis is. It is putting everything where it's supposed to be. And you're joining an entire orchestra of music to create something beautiful in this world. And so, I hope that you see this movement that we've been doing from Genesis all the way through Deuteronomy as exactly this. Putting all the right pieces of the puzzle together. And so when we talked about Genesis and the Ezer Konegdo, the difference between male and female, the tree of knowledge. We talked about what does it mean to be naked in the garden and what was the rainbow and how that was a weapon term. The rainbow of Noah was a weapon and how God hung that up and the Tower of Babel. We talked about private parts and what was the significance of circumcision and covenants and contracts and the testing that went through Abraham. Not as you're now being tested, but you're going out for a test drive to see what God's creation can do. All of these stories are encouraging us to consider what is my part in this beautiful symphony that God is creating. In Exodus, we talked about the major significance of minor characters. Because in a symphony, it can be very uh, easy for us to be seduced into the most important pieces of the puzzle are really what it's all about. But in this Exodus story, there are minor characters along the way inviting us to recognize that there is no part that you play that is insignificant in this story. We talked about the name, God's name, Echia, Asher, Echia. I will be what I will be. You can't define God. You have no idea where God is going. God will be whatever God will be. And about how this whole idea of the 10 plagues is really just a reversal of creation and a total commentary against all the gods of Egypt and about how there's sacred places and sacred spaces and by building a sanctuary here on earth, we create those sacred moments. You gathering in a place like this, like I said, doing something analog in a digital world is something sacred and something holy. In Leviticus, we talked about how sacrifice, the word for sacrifice in Hebrew is the same word that means to be close. And so while we think of blood and guts and so many sacrifices, there's actually something that God is doing about drawing us close through the language of that particular day of sacrifice. 
about how there's holiness in that connection. And that we can't be holy, meaning super religious, but when things are right in this world, justice, that's what holiness is. And the commandment for Jubilee, that every seven years and every 50 years, you are to make sure that no one in your community is oppressed economically. Inviting all of us to consider the economic system is not what is God. It's not what is God's design and intention. It's to invite us to consider that every single person on the face of this planet in our community has dignity and worth and value. And dare we not ever let an economic system oppress a brother or a sister. The pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud move. We don't wander, we follow. And we have to be reminded, that's why we put tassels. Uh, We talked about um, how there's so many sacrifices. We talked about women making vows. That was Pastor Omer's talk about this move, even throughout the desert of these redemptive movements. And even these cities of refuge where there's accidental deaths that happen. How do you care for people even when things go wrong? How do you set up a kind of system where everybody has dignity and worth. And over the last several weeks of Deuteronomy, we've been talking about the words that we say, the covenants that we make, um, hearing and obeying and listening, pursuing justice, what kind of voices are needed, not just a prophet, but all of us as prophets, and the call, the continual call to choose life in everything. And I know that's a big, huge, fat, very oversimplified, scattered summary I say all of that because I want you to go back and listen to every single talk from Genesis. And every single moment throughout our journey, I think there's been a woo. There's been an invitation. There's been this drawing you in to say, there is a life that's found in these words. And I am begging and praying that you would consider this life. And so when we get to the end of Deuteronomy, it feels like there should be this climax There's this end. We're at the end of the Torah. There's this huge moment where everything kind of comes together. Moses dies, passes it on to Joshua. We've made it. We've got all, all the teaching and everything ends. Notice nobody claps because this is only minute eight of a 35 minute concerto. Turn the page. Softly with motion. I love that phrase. Softly with motion. Friends, you and I have inherited the first part, the first act. You and I have inherited our ancestors doing so much hard work. You and I have inherited all of that. And now we are invited in to pick up our instruments and play in the band, play in the symphony, to do our part to advance these very ideas, to continue it on for the next 27 minutes (laughs) of the concerto, of the symphony. I could just listen to this all day. This, my friends, is the image that I would propose to you is happening in this text. That there is a beginning that starts. There's a conductor that moves. And there's 
our ancestors that have played a part. And now that we've come to the end of Deuteronomy, with all that movement, we are now just invited to participate. I hope that you don't go through our time together just knowing something new or being perhaps intrigued. I hope that you come and participate and you are invited into this community, you're connected, and then you're inspired, drawn in, attracted to a whole new way of life. And as we've said many, many times before, in a world where there's so much chaos and injustice and death and horrific things that are happening, how much of how much of this kind of life is needed in our world today, and I hope that you're invited into it. So, this is only through Deuteronomy. This is my little pitch for Danielle, starting in January. She teaches the whole course from Genesis all the way to Revelation called Garden to Garden. It's going to start Mondays, beginning January, um, on Mondays. And if you are interested and looking for a thing that helps you understand what is the grand narrative of this entire story, because we just covered Genesis all the way through Deuteronomy. We're going to go all the way through, Deut- um, through Revelation next, through the entire Bible. We would encourage you to participate in that. It's 20 weeks, 10 chapters a day. Don't worry, there's no guilt or shame if you don't get through it. But it'll give you a good sense of what is the rest of the story. What is Act 2? What is the second part, the third part, the fourth part of this symphony that's being played that we have inherited? So, my friends, um, we have come to the end of Deuteronomy. We have heard the song that Moses sang, drawing in all the images from the previous portions of the Torah. We've seen the blessings. We've venerated the death. We have now come to the end. And I hope that at this particular end, you feel a sense that it's not just the end, but it's an invitation. It's a feeling and a sense that I've told you these stories about our ancestors because here's the deal. You are the part of the story that's not in the text that you get to write, that you get to play. This community together is continuing on that story. These children that we are raising in the midst of our community are the next generation after us. And soon we will lay down our instruments and ask them to continue to pursue justice, creation, mercy, love, relationship, tradition, sacredness, holiness. We're going to ask them to do the same thing. So I hope that you feel in some sense wooed and invited into that story. I know this was a little bit up here, but if you go back through the rest of the teachings, there's these really huge pieces of the puzzle that we hope are woven into your life that make a real true difference for how we live. Because our gatherings and our church and our ministry is really not just Um, as has often been said, a country club for people who believe in Jesus to just gather and have fun. It's hopefully to inspire us by our ancestors to live a whole new way and to consider what that looks like in our life. We're going to take communion um, as we sing a closing song. And as we do every single week, this is a sacrament that reminds us that this too is an invitation. When you take the elements you are proclaiming very much like this theme that we've seen. You're retelling the story. You take the bread because you are retelling the story of Jesus' life, his death, and his burial. You take the juice because you are retelling the story of his sacrifice, of the shed blood, of how he gave up everything for our life, for us to experience. 
And so as we sing, I'm going to encourage you to take communion, to grab some of the bread, to dip it into the juice, and to eat as a sacrament and a remembrance of this story that's been told for thousands of years. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed, and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Everyone is invited to this table. Whoever you are, wherever you've been, wherever you happen to be spiritually right now, you are invited to the table. This is your table. You are a part of this community. You are a part of this story. You are a part of this legacy. So we invite you to partake. To my beautiful Spark community, may you know the joy, the blessing, and the privilege to be invited into God's kingdom. May you be wooed by God's amazing love for you and for this world. May you be drawn in to experience the fullness of his presence. And may you be excited to answer the invitation to live in his way. And I pray in your name. Amen.